Hi everyone, this is NEPA Inspired. My name is Kyle Reed. I'm here with Chad Vale, and we're here with episode one. And today's guest is going to be Coach James Laney of uh, NEPA Mixed Martial Arts. How are you, Coach James? I'm good. How are you today, Kyle? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Um, so the whole goal of this podcast is to kind of find people in our area that uh, have inspired or made a difference or made a change in their lifestyle. Um, and being that I've known you for about two years, I figured one of the best way to start is someone that's very close to me wise. Um, can you kind of give us a little bit about your history, though, like born, raised, and things of that sort, like where you grew up, where you started? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I'm the grandson of Irish immigrants. Uh, so, you know, big family, uh, you know, kind of tough childhood, traditional Irish household, you know, big Irish Catholic family. We always beat each other up. So I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, fighting with my cousins and stuff like that growing up. Uh, moved to this area when... I was seven, uh, grew up in Dallas, graduated from there, uh, went to culinary school, uh, came back, and now I'm cooking in a restaurant locally and uh, helping out over at your school, teaching the kids jiu-jitsu program. So uh, when you moved to the area, did you, you have brothers, sisters, mom, dad, anything of that, like, did you come, who did you come with? Uh, yeah, it was my parents and uh, my brother. There was some uh, some circumstances that kind of forced our move from New York to here. Uh, we also already had family here, so this is the area where we ended up. Because uh, it was my mom, my dad, and my older brother. Um, my dad passed away a few years later, and it was just uh, me and my mom growing up uh, for most of my life. And then in like 2006, uh, she passed away, and it's just kind of been me since then. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you when your dad passed away? Uh, I was 11. Okay. Yeah, he uh, he had mesothelioma. He had lung cancer from uh, removing asbestos. He worked for an electrical company and stuff. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, and your mother, how did, if you don't mind? Uh, she had a lot of health problems. Um, mostly was uh, like heart disease related. Uh, she was not the uh, healthiest person in the world. Uh, she you know didn't. <clears throat> she was not very active. Uh, very sedentary lifestyle. She smoked. She ate poorly. You know all the things they tell you not supposed to do. And then she was surprised <laughs> that she got sick. You know it's uh, it's amazing how that works, huh? Definitely. Um, so you graduated from Dallas and you went to culinary school. Where did you uh, study? Uh, I went to culinary school in New York City at the French Culinary Institute. Uh, they have recently just closed, actually. Uh, you know, with COVID and everything, New York's New York City's pretty much completely shut down, so they weren't making any money and. You know, real estate's a premium there. But, uh, yeah, I went to culinary school there, spent a little time working um, in Manhattan, which was a ton of fun. Uh, learned a lot of cool stuff, met a lot of really interesting people. Uh, it's an amazing city, if uh, it's other than the fact that it's super expensive. Um, and then uh, my mom's health started getting a little worse, so I ended up moving back to this area. So while you were out there, like, I have to ask, though, why, while you were out there cooking, did you meet anyone, like, cool or, like, famous out there being in New York City, likewise? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not, not that, like, you know, me and these people became friends, but there was a couple times where, like, you know, I was working at a restaurant and, like, some famous people came in, um, the, uh, Lance Armstrong and which one of the twins was his girlfriend? Uh, the ones that were on Full uh, House, you know what I'm talking yeah, about, yeah. uh. Oh, yeah. Um, Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen. Yeah. So one of them, they came into the restaurant that I was working at, and uh, 
You know, some like famous people. I saw uh, Ryan Gosling walking his dog on the street once. <laughs> uh, saw I Method Man at a store. You know, cool stuff like that. Yeah, like, you yeah, run into some famous people. That's kind of neat. You don't really get that around here. Yeah, but like definitely cooking for them and knowing your your meal oh, yeah. is going to be sitting in front of them and uh, they're judging everything you put in front of them. Is, uh, and, and trust me, that's kind of nerve-wracking because, uh, you know, don't get it confused. The uh, the person who sat them comes into the kitchen and tells you, like, immediately, hey, like, Kirsten Dunst is out at this table. Like, make sure you don't fuck her food up. So <laughs> so what is the, if you don't mind me asking quick, what's the biggest difference between, like, working for a restaurant in New York City or working for, like, a local place here in, in Pennsylvania? Is it, uh, is it, I would imagine it seemed like kind of cutthroat or something in New York. Like, yes. Based off of TV shows and shit like that. Uh, yeah, so that's... One is going to be the pace, obviously. There's a significant larger population in New York than there is here. And, uh, yeah, like you said, the, the level of competition for a job is much different. Like, here, uh, no disrespect to my fellow line cooks, but I've worked with some people that, like, as long as you have a heartbeat and can hold tongs, you have a job. <laughs> where there's places there where, you know, we had 10 guys come in today from culinary schools, drop off applications. So, like, if you can't hack it, well, that's fine, because one of them will. And the like, yeah, so step up or step out, kind exactly. Of like, and there, like, here you get hired, you get your job. There at fine dining restaurants, you do what's called a trail, you work a day where you don't get paid at all, you do whatever they tell you to do, and you make sure that you fit well within their system. Because just like any job, you could be great at it, but if you don't fit within the system of your employer, you're useless. Yeah, if you're the best, but you're a dick, no one's gonna want to exactly. You know, if <laughs> you, you can, you know, even in uh, in what Sensei Kyle does, you know, you could be a great instructor, but if you're not personable, then you're not gonna be able to hold clients. Yeah. So if you don't fit within the system that you're trying to you know, have, then you're kind of useless, no matter how good you are. Yeah. So, um, we're going to change the topic, change, uh, make a veer right here. Um, at what point did you, uh, begin to start using drugs? Like when did you find, uh, that kind of path in life or make that change in life or like what caused you to make that change in life? I should say, uh, I think like anybody else, it started off very innocently, uh, experimented with friends. You know, there was a some parties at my mom's house and all my cousins would come over. They were all older, you know, sneak a drink here and there. Um, I just wasn't aware that when I made those decisions, the path that it was leading me down, like my intention was never to get out of hand to never like, you know, let that overtake my life the way it eventually did. But, uh, early teens, uh, nothing crazy. I don't think the beginning of my story is all that different than anybody's, uh, with that sort of, stuff uh it's just the like i said the path that i ended up going down was a little more extreme <laughs> than uh, some other people definitely when, we'll touch base on that one when you say you um you know started out just kind of drinking and stuff was it um you know like full-on parties or were you guys just sneaking a beer here and there or did you do you know start with weed and kind of work your way up like what uh yeah that like i said um Pretty typical thing, you know, we, we, we had parties, we would go, we'd drink some beers, if there was a party at my house, or, you know, oh, there was a bottle of liquor left over from the party last week, so me and my buddies would steal that and drink it, and it wasn't, you know, oh, so-and-so's older cousin can get us a bag of weed, like, it was nothing, it was kind of like, you know, young dumb kids having fun, yeah. and at some point along the way, uh, all those other young dumb kids, for the most part, grew up and, like, started leading normal productive lives where me and some of the other people that ended up down that path didn't. So, uh, during that, during that path, like at what point 
did it really turn like south or like what what caused it to go south or like when did it start going south that you started like using more aggressive drugs or trying to find uh i don't want to use the term loosely but uh, a better high or if, if that's kind of the correct way i want to say that uh so i think at some point <clears throat> it stopped being a uh a good time uh probably like in my my early 20s when you know, everybody wanted to go out to the bar and have fun. Like, I had already been, you know, drinking and all that stuff for six or seven years. So, I was kind of, like, played out on that. So, I would just sit in my house and, like, drink by myself. And I started to realize, like, oh, wait a minute. Like, this might be becoming a problem. This isn't me socially drinking anymore. This is me, like, trying to avoid something. Like, there was something, like, deep-rooted that I was trying to bury. And, like, eventually... You can't smoke enough weed to make it work. You can't drink enough whiskey to make it work. And, you know, the the progression just starts. And it's it's very slow at first. Like I said, there was, you know, six or seven years where it was just drinking, smoking weed, you know, maybe blow a little coke at a party or whatever. You know, if somebody had some, not like drug-seeking behavior, but if it was there, I would do it. And somewhere along the way, like I said, I think that became more... Uh, my mission was not just to, like, let loose and have a good time, but, like, let's see how fucked up I can get, you know? And that's kind of, uh, it took me a long time to realize that. But, like, in hindsight, that's that's what started happening. So, like, to really answer your question, probably somewhere in, like, my early 20s, it started to become a problem, started to, like, affect my job. Like, I was a breakfast cook for a while, and, like, I lost my job because I couldn't get to work on time because I was hungover. Um, blow my entire paycheck at the bar in one night. Uh, that kind of stuff. That was going to be my next question. Did it start affecting your like work life? And were you able to like maintain a job during this or did you find other sources of like income wise? Uh, so both for the most part, yes, I was always able to maintain a job. And I think that was, uh, you know, some people say that that, oh, what's better, I'm functional, whatever. For me, I almost think it was worse because it gave me that excuse. Like, oh, well, things aren't bad. I still have a job. Like I can still get up in the morning. I can still go to work. I can still pay my bills whatever things aren't going that badly you know you see uh the dramatizations on tv of like oh well this guy's a he's a bum wino that's like sleeping outside the liquor store like that's not always the case like it could be the dude that's you know working right next to you that's dealing with some shit you don't know about and he's going home and drinking a bottle of liquor every night uh yeah it started to affect my lifestyle started to affect like personal relationships you know people were saying like hey man like maybe you're getting a little out of hand and instead of realizing they were just trying to uh Help me, I felt like they were trying to attack me and tell me how to live my life, and I was very uh, resistant against that for a long time. So, what's the um, what what's your feeling when somebody comes to you, especially when you have that feeling that you know, like that you're okay, that you can still maintain a job, and you don't really see it as big of a problem as some other people see it? Does it feel just like a personal attack, and you're just in kind of like complete denial of what's going on, or how like how do you? mentally process that yeah uh, i think on a certain level and i can only speak from my personal experience uh when you're telling yourself like well it's not that bad i can still have a job or whatever like deep down inside somewhere you know it's bullshit right like you know like okay i'm definitely getting out of hand and you're rationalizing you're making it okay so when people start to point out your bullshit like of course like we all get mad when people call us on our bullshit whether it's your significant other one of your best friends like no i don't want to hear that i want to hear you encouraging me tell me no you're right it's not that bad like well, look you went to work you haven't called off yet like you know oh, you only called off once last month because of a hangover like you're doing great you know and that's 
unfortunately, the trap that uh, I've seen a lot of people fall into, because once you start making those rationalizations, it's usually too late. And that's where, like, you know, like I said, that progression starts off slow, but then it starts picking up like the snowball rolling down the hill, you know, and like you start making excuses for more and more and more. And then you let yourself those little allowances and you can get away with more and more, you know. So uh, during this process of like increasing like the drug use or the different things of that sort, were you kind of like back by yourself or did you have like a significant other that you uh, kind of like went through this process with uh, during it? If this, if that's something you want to talk about. Yeah. Um, so I know, I know this is a touchy <laughs> one. I had to throw this off. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, one of the other issues that I struggled with for a long time, uh, along with like my substance abuse problems was I was very codependent. Um, my dad passed away when I was young. Uh, my mom and I didn't have the greatest relationship. Uh, so there was something, some insecurity that I had, that there's some void that I felt like I had to fill that drugs and alcohol just won't do, you know? Like, they don't fill the space next to you in bed. So I had uh, a lot of girlfriends. Um, most of them were just people that I went and, like, went to the bar with. And then, like, you know, I would try to have, like, a serious relationship and always manage sabotaging myself because I, I couldn't, I couldn't provide what they wanted. Like, I was uh, very emotionally cut off from a lot of things. And the fact that I was, like, wildly and recklessly abusing drugs and alcohol didn't really make me a wonder to be around. Uh, especially when I was drinking a lot. Uh, some days you get, like, good, happy-go-lucky, good time, James. Other times, not so much. <laughs> so... Yeah, that uh, like I said, that ruined a lot of my personal relationships. Not just uh, not just significant others, but you know, friends, uh, family members, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, a lot of that happened, especially later on. Very well. Um, so now, what caused the change in James, or like what made you sit back and realize that it was, or what happened that made you want to make a difference or make a change in your own life? All right, so. Uh, around the time, uh, shortly after my mom died, uh, I became addicted to heroin and that's when things really started to go downhill. Uh, so that went on for about five years, six years. And how much, uh, just to kind of hop in here, when you started using heroin, could you take us through real quick too, while you're going over this, kind of like how much you started using and right before you, you know, you got clean kind of the progression of how much you were you were using and everything else. Right, absolutely. Uh, all right, so before uh, before I even got into doing heroin, uh, I developed a painkiller problem, uh, like most people do. Uh, that is, like, a legitimate concern with the opioid crisis. You know, I had a bunch of dental work done. They gave me a bottle of 30 Vicodin. I was like, hey, I like how this feels, and that's how it went. But, uh, yeah, when I first started, um, I was... Uh, very adverse to the idea of using needles and that was kind of my first uh rationalization was like oh well i can sniff this bag of heroin but i'm not shooting it so like i would start off you know snorting a bag or two and you know that would be fine and then it came to a point where like i was doing so much like snorting them that it was making me sick to my stomach and i was like oh well i could just do it this way well then you know once i started shooting heroin it was it was it was all over. Like, I'll never forget. I don't know how graphic we can get, but... Uh, you can you can go balls to the wall. Yeah, man. so the, the, first <laughs> time the, the first time that I ever did... Uh, first time I ever injected heroin. Uh, <laughs> I will never, as long as I live, forget that feeling. And a friend of mine who's also gotten sober told me, like, the reason why 
heroin so addicting is because people aren't meant to feel that good. And, like, that stuck with me because it's true. Like, if you're willing to give away everything in your life, throw away everything, your freedom, your family, your money, your job, just for that feeling, like, imagine what that feels like, right? Like, that's that must be fucking incredible. So that started, like, as soon as I did it, like, I knew it was kind of a... Like, I, I just took a step that I was going to have a very, very hard time coming back from. Uh, by the end, it, to answer your question, how much was I doing as much as I can get my hands on? Uh, which some days was next to none, some days was a lot. Uh, I'm going to jump too far through the story, but yeah, that's kind of what happened to start my change. I fucked over a lot of people. I was involved in a lot of really shady stuff. My apartment, my apartment basically became the trap house that you see in movies. There was drug dealers, prostitutes, all kinds of like crazy shit. And like to me, it was Tuesday. You know, like it, it seemed like a totally normal thing at the time. Now looking back on it, I'm like, what the fuck was I thinking? Why did that seem normal? Like that's insane. But uh, yeah, I did a lot of uh, not great things. Some of them caught up with me. To me. Uh, I couldn't afford to get high, so I robbed somewhere that will remain nameless for the purposes of this podcast. Uh, but eventually that caught up with me, and I went to jail. Uh, and when the cops came to my house that day, I was so I was so done. Like uh, prior to my being arrested, I had intentionally tried to overdose multiple times. I had several failed suicide attempts. Like when people. When people are, like, hooked on drugs, you know, that's something I, I've never got. When people look at them, they're like, oh, they're just scumbag junkies. Maybe. But that's not a choice, necessarily. Like, they're not... You don't want to wake up every morning and feel like that. You just don't. It's an awful feeling. And you know that you're doing really terrible, awful things to people. And you don't care. Like, I... Prior to her passing away, like, I robbed my own mother for painkillers. You know what I mean? It's not something I'm proud of, but... It's the reality of the situation, you know, and it's sad to see good people do that kind of stuff. And I've met a ton of people who were great, great people that had real bad drug problems. So, um, obviously, uh, using heroin every day, uh, and then going to jail, like now you have, so you're going from all to nothing. I know we've previously talked about that experience, but like. What was that like going from waking up to needing the high to being locked into a cell where you couldn't get high, you couldn't, had no freedom, you were eating and sleeping what they wanted? Like, what was that process like? Almost like, what was that detox like? Uh, Worst thing imaginable. (laughs) Uh, So I had obviously tried to get clean a million times. I tried to do it at my house. Uh, You know, me being me, I don't need to go to rehab. I'm fine. I'll just do it here. Um... And I thought being sick at my house was bad. Uh, at least there you can like lay in your own bed and you don't have people yelling at you and feeding you garbage ass food and your toilet's not made of metal. And it's just a bad time, you know? And uh, when you detox in jail, they don't give you anything. Like you're not allowed to take any sort of comfort meds and they don't give you, because like you're technically on like a low form suicide watch, they don't give you sheets, they don't give you a pillow, they don't give you a blanket. Like, well, they give you like a tearproof blanket that you're only allowed to have from 11 at night till seven in the morning. So you're laying on this plastic mattress, sweating, feeling like shit. And, you know, I, laying there, I was like, wow, this is where, like, all of my scheming and all of my decisions and all my plotting, this is where I ended up. You know, and this, 
it's not what I wanted for my life. Obviously, it's not what anybody wants for their life. But I, I don't know. Something happened. Like I decided that that wasn't what I needed uh, in my life. But or rather, that was what I needed was to go to jail. Uh, like I said, rehab. Like that's always an option. But at rehab, it's a medical facility. You can sign yourself out. I can't sign myself out of jail. And no matter how much I wanted to or how much I schemed or, you know, planned, like, they're not just going to let me sign myself out and go home. Like, unfortunately, (laughs) like, I'm kind of stuck here. And I needed that. I needed to be physically removed from my situation long enough to kind of get my shit together. And uh, the the most important part and maybe, like, the most pivotal moment for me, I think, was uh, they had an AA meeting while I was in jail. And I went because, obviously, at that point, I, I had started to realize, like, okay, I need help. You know, for years I had been trying to to beat this on my own, whether it was drinking or drugs or now heroin. Like, I was convinced I was going to do it on my own. I had tried everything and failed miserably. And one of the big things in AA is that, like, you have to admit you have a problem and, like, that you're powerless. Like, you you need help, right? And, like, me and my big hard-ass ego, well, no, like, I, I don't need help. I'm going to do this on my own. And... I went to this meeting and this guy was there and he's like, hey man, you know, five years ago I was sitting in your seat right there and I had tried changing people, places, things, all the stuff they tell you in rehab, no matter what, everywhere I went, I was still there. And until I changed myself, I couldn't get better. And that seems like such a simple concept, but I had never taken responsibility for anything, nothing that I had done in my entire life. So I was like, oh wait, so you're telling me all this time I've been the problem? And, like, once I made a conscious decision to start, like, changing things about myself, it it made all the difference in the world. Like, I think perception and perspective is one of the most important things. And I try to stress that, uh, you know, to people in life now, whether it's at work or, you know, with teaching, anything like that. When, if I think that life sucks and everything's awful, life's going to suck and everything's going to be awful, right? Like... I was in jail and I found this silver lining like, oh, hey, wait, this got me clean. This saved my life. If it wasn't for that guy, that cop coming to my door that day and putting me in handcuffs and putting me in jail, I'd be dead. And I was like, wait, if I could find a silver lining to being in jail, then there's nothing in life that I can't find like an upside to. And I think that's that's a huge part of uh, success at anything. That sounds like that was like your turn right there was... Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. There, there was, uh, like, a very distinct moment in time where, like, I know there's people who were like, I don't know, like, it was just kind of like this organic thing that, like, came about. But, like, for me, it was, like, a very definitive moment where I was like, okay. You opened I up have, your eyes right, and this is it. Yeah, like, I have absolutely hit rock bottom. I threw my hands up in the air and I was like, I need help. Like, somebody fucking help me because I, <laughs> I can't keep going like this. Definitely. How long were you? How long were you actually in jail? Uh, not very long. A uh, little over two months. Uh, long enough that like the physical <laughs> stuff had started to subside. Uh, I gained some weight back. I started exercising while I was there. Um, and by the time I got out, like I had set in my mind, like the first few weeks, I was like, okay, if I get out, like I'm probably going to state prison. Like I got one more run in me. Like I I can get away with this. But then you know by the time and it was just uh, like freak circumstance of the universe like i was supposed to go to court three weeks earlier and just because of like scheduling conflicts with the judge and this and that they moved my court date back so i ended up having to sit for an extra almost month and it 
really like gave me time to like kind of focus myself a little bit like okay when I get out like I need to get a job I need to find a hobby I need to like but even if I do end up going to state prison like I don't want to go back to being a junkie when I get out on the street you know like I wanted to I wanted better for myself and I felt like I owed the people who did stick by me because uh, there there was a few that like even when I went to jail uh, stuck by my side and like really supported me uh, there were some people I thought were my friends that took the opportunity to like prey on my downfall and just talk shit on me on Facebook. But you know, it is what it is. Like, not that I'm like some big shot. I'm oh, I'm going to have haters, but like some people are just fucking miserable. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they don't want to see people do well and succeed, whether it's because there's some shit they're dealing with or whatever. I don't know. But so how long from the time you got out, what was the, uh, like until I guess the, the phrase everyone uses is like got back on your feet. So from the time you got out of jail, like, when would you say you kind of hit that point where you were back on your feet and, you know, kind of just living a normal life again? Like, what was that like getting out of jail and, and detoxing and everything? Um, honestly, I'm still trying. <laughs> but no, uh, to, like, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, it definitely took a little bit. Uh, there was some adjusting. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I briefly touched on AA. Uh, I, I went... I, used to go to meetings all the time uh, through Alcoholics Anonymous, and the people there were tremendously helpful. Uh, like I said, from the time that I was an early teen until my early 30s, I was drinking and doing drugs and living that lifestyle. Like, I didn't know how to be a normal person. I had no idea. So I started going to meetings, and I was like, hey, guys, like, can you kind of teach me like, what the fuck I'm supposed to do here? Uh, and, you know, it's simple stuff that people should do, you know, like, oh, get a job get a hobby, stay busy, uh, you know, things like that. When you have problems, talk about it. And that was something that was a big issue for me because I was always like, you know, internalized everything. And that was, you know, kind of one of the reasons uh, that I used drugs in the first place was to, you know, self-medicate and deal with all that stuff. And I thought it made me weak to ask for help. And it wasn't until like after I got clean that I realized that like, asking for help is probably like one of the strongest things you can do because you're admitting like hey i can't do this on my own man like help me you know and that's really hard for a lot of people uh but yeah with the, it took me a couple months especially um and not that it was like some national news but what i did was kind of high profile in this area and the industry that i work in everybody knew about it so i was putting in job applications and they're like hey you're that guy and i was like fuck yep, yep i am that guy i'll see you later so it took me a couple months to uh, get a job and like financially get back on my feet, but um, yeah, probably about six months before I felt like I had like my feet underneath me and I wasn't in like you know grave danger of relapse every day. Yeah. Now, when you got out and you began like your AA classes, obviously like the people you surrounded yourself with was a key factor. Uh, whether it be friends that supported you family members from afar, family members from that lived with you, um, even people that, like, you trained with or worked out with. Um, who were some of those people that, like, kept you, like, that on track? I know personally one person I'm thinking of, but I'll see if you mention this person before I bring up this person. Uh, so my er, – early on, uh, my AA sponsor was uh, – he was huge in giving me guidance. There was a couple of situations I found myself in where – uh, you know, things were going very sideways for me in my life and I didn't know how to deal with them. And he, he kind of pushed me in the right direction, still allowed me to make my own decision. But, uh, 
yeah, I mean, past that, I had uh, I had a lot of support from people close to me. I mean, obviously, you were a huge support, and I think you know something that you touched on about like you know positive people and and inspirational people. It, it's you know that whole like birds of a feather thing. It's very true. Like if you want positive shit and you want positive energy in your life, you need to surround yourself with positive people. When I was getting high and you know doing grimy things, I hung out with you know, suspect grimy people. So of course, like nothing good happened in my life. Like, oh man, I'm surprised that that junkie stole my shit while I was sleeping. You know, like mm-hmm. those kind of things are to be expected when you hang around with those kind of people. So uh, when I got out, I wanted to be, um, you know, surrounded by like-minded people who were going to keep me on the path. Uh, my girlfriend has been wonderful at, uh, Keeping my shit together. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll touch her on. Uh, that's, that's about three questions down. Yeah, we, we'll save her uh, for the, the ending. Yeah, she, uh, <laughs> she's been great. Um, you know, all the guys that uh, at the MMA school are wonderful. Uh, my cousin that I lived with when I came home, he, he was uh, very instrumental and very supportive in uh, me getting my shit together. You know, he didn't have to give me a place to live, and he did. Uh, and the people that uh, were involved in the program that actually got me out of jail. So Luzerne County has this thing uh, real quick called uh, the Drug Treatment Court Program. And it's for people like me that uh, made some really dumb decisions that got themselves into trouble. And it's basically like, hey, you do this 18-month uh, program. It's, you know, very intensive. You have to go through all kinds of counseling and buy, you know, twice-weekly drug tests and all that sort of stuff. But uh, it was either that or do 10 years in state prison. So it's a pretty easy choice if you're willing to actually, like, get your shit together. Uh, they were all tremendously helpful in, uh, you know, guiding me down the path that I needed to be on. So before, I know Kyle has a question. I can see it on his paper over here. But before uh, before we hit on that, I just wanted to ask real quick. Like I know you mentioned that program was 18 months. How long have you actually been sober now? It'll be three years oh, in awesome. May. So That's awesome. Definitely. And you didn't touch on the person I was expecting you to throw out. Uh-oh. And I don't know if we'll get Coach James to shed a tear on this one. Uh, your aunt and cousin from New York. I feel like I've only met your cousin once, and I've heard a tremendous amount of stories. But I feel like those two, your cousin and aunt, if they knew you were slipping up, they yeah. definitely would have come and busted you up a little uh, bit. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, my cousin Mike and I, uh, we are 18 months apart. And he is more like my brother than my cousin. Uh, I, as I said earlier, I do have an older brother. He's ten years older than me, so uh, the big age gap. You know, we weren't ever, we weren't really super close growing up. Uh, but yeah, when I went to jail, he, uh, my cousin, was uh, very supportive. Uh, I talked to him on the phone every day. He helped me out on commissary. Uh, Offered me a place to live when I came home. Uh, he's been one of the most supportive uh, people in my life. My aunt, uh, she actually passed away because of COVID uh, during the whole pandemic. She was a nurse uh, working at a hospital. She's also my godmother. Uh, that's where I lived when I went to culinary school. Wonderful lady. And, uh, you know, same thing like Kyle alluded to. She was uh, one of my most vocal supporters in everything <laughs> I did <laughs> after getting clean, which is... Uh, you know, that, that's really helpful. Like, not that I, um, you know, ever think people should be looking for a pat, a pat on the back, but it's nice. You know, when people are like, hey, man, like, you know, you're doing a good job. That's, it kind of keeps you, uh, keeps you motivated and reminds you sometimes why you do it. Definitely. 
I, I, I didn't know if you were trying to avoid it or <laughs> so we didn't pull on some tear jerking strings yeah, there, but you know. I, I knew how much like she meant to you yeah. plus your cousin. So I definitely wanted to make sure, uh, we gave praise where praise is due. Yeah, that was, that was a good thing to bring up though, because I, I think a lot of people don't, there's a lot of people that have a harder time accepting praise than they do accepting criticism. And a lot of people don't, don't like hearing about the things that they, they do well and, and, not to put him on the spot, but I'm going to mention Kyle here because with, you know, obviously my kids go to the karate school, but you never know of any of his accolades or anything like that. You just hear word of mouth that it's a good karate school. Mm -hmm. I told him, I'm like, dude, you should have a, a friggin' billboard on 309 with your picture and all of your accomplishments and, and your, you know, your class size would skyrocket. But for him, he's like, no, no, like, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm, he, he tries and keep it all very quiet. And it's, you know, he's one of those guys you can see as soon as you start, like, saying, man, like, that's pretty nuts. Like, he gets all uncomfortable. You can see right I, away. I, so. I do. I'm, <laughs> I, I like to stay as humble as possible and, like, keep myself, keep, keep myself surrounded with people that keep me humble, like Coach James, uh, <laughs> is definitely a key factor. Yeah, I mean, his head's already big enough, so I try, <laughs> I try to keep it as small as possible. But, uh, no, you bring up a good point. And I, I think uh, there needs to be a good balance of that. You know, uh, you can't get too ahead of yourself especially uh you know my situation like i i've often described the entire concept of me being sober as like this house of cards right like it's this nice thing that you look at but one false move the whole thing could fall apart and i think that like helped me remain vigilant because i know that like any day like all i need to do is make one really dumb decision and i could destroy everything i've worked on for three years yeah you know and uh it's, I saw one of the other things that you had written down here. Uh, coincidentally enough, today popped up on my Facebook memory. It was two years ago today I started teaching at the school. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's why it's on there. <laughs> so I'm going to tell my side of the story about how we met. <laughs> and then you can give your side of the story uh, if I miss anything. Um, so two years ago you started teaching. It was probably just a little over probably two month, two years and three months that like we met. Mm -hmm. And he came through the school uh, just wanted to train jujitsu. Um, came to me and he was like, "Hey man, like I only have twenty five bucks. Like I get paid every week. Can I give you twenty five bucks a week, or can I give you fifty bucks every two weeks? Like I just need a place to train." Now at this current moment, I didn't know who he was, but he came to me. He was very straightforward. He was upfront and he was honest. And I was like, you know what? I'll give this guy a shot. I was like, he looks like, and he walked to the school. So got, and I didn't know where he walked from. I just know he wanted to train it's and cold he wanted as hell too. It was. <laughs> it was like January, I think yeah. he started. But like came in, walked there and and wanted a place to train. So I gave him a shot. About two or three days later, I did my research. I asked a couple people who knew him or knew of him because we did have a lot of people in the same circle of like jujitsu or strength training, things of that sort, of who James Delaney was. And most had great things to say about him. Others said, hey, if he's still the same guy he was two years ago, be careful. And I was like, all right, like, we'll give him a shot. So then three months later, uh, he, he was stuck around. He was there every day at the school. He was there early before the kids class. Like this dude had no responsibility to be there, had no reason to be there early. He just wanted to be there and be at the, at the school. So about three months in, I looked at him and I was like, oh man, like, you don't have to pay me no more. 
And he looked at me and he was like, what do you mean I don't have to pay you? I was like, you come in for the kids' class without me asking. You help with the kids' class and you still willingly pay me and you haven't asked for a dollar. I was like, I was like, you earned it. I was like, you earned my respect. You earned my trust. I was like, this is... This is what my, I can do for you. And, like, from that point forward, I think we had that, like, a mutual agreement, like, this was going somewhere. Like, it was, I respected him, he respected me. And then from that point forward, I think I took him to his drug test three times a week. <laughs> I'd pick him up at his house. I would drive him to his drug test because with the with the program he was on, uh, he would have to go take a, a two or three times a week to a weekly drug test. So I'd pick him up either from work or from his house, drive him to his drug test, and then either drop him off back at work or bring him to the school. And then there were times he would he would get dropped off on uh, the Ave. And all the way, if you don't know where my school is, we're on Main Street in Edwardsville, he would get dropped off by, like, the Lowe's and Zerbia area, and he would walk all the way to school. And I'm like, dude, you're not walking no more. Like, I'll come pick you up. Like, it's no issue. And him being the very prideful person he is, did not want to accept that at first. He would just sometimes wouldn't tell me when he would get dropped off. And I'm like, dude, you're not walking here. Like, you're an instructor here. Like, we look out for each other. This is a family here. And I don't think he understood, like, what that meant at first to be a part of, like, what we had at the school um, until he officially took over the kids program. And, like, without hesitation, I gave him to him. I was like, yo, this is your program. Were there people there that were there a little longer than him? But there was no one there that deserved it more than him. Uh, he showed his definitely true loyalty. And then two years goes by, we went to Atlantic City for a tournament. Uh, we went to Wildwood for a jiu-jitsu tournament. Like, we went to do all these things be and, like, together. Like, he's like my brother from another mother. And my mother still talks to him like he's another son and threatens his life <laughs> like he's another son. So And I still fear her like she is my mother. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just a, a great bond that, like, we've we've established in a short period of time. Like, knowing that I've only known him for just a little over two years, you would swear – we grew up together, even though he is way older than me and way got way more gray hair than me at this point in his life. <laughs> but you would swear that, uh, that we were brothers forever. Um, anything I didn't miss on this topic or that I, uh, that I didn't kind of elaborate no, on? Uh, yeah, that was about it. Um, <laughs> I, when, uh, when Kyle moved the location of his school, it just happened to be the most convenient location that I could get to uh, with like my transportation situation. So I decided that's where I was going to train. I knew some guys that trained there uh, that spoke highly of the place. Uh, had no idea who Kyle was other than, like, you know, he ran the school. And uh, like you said, we, we had a lot of people in the same circles uh, prior to, uh, like, my life really coming unhinged. Like, I had done jujitsu before. Uh, I competed in powerlifting and strongman competitions for a while. So we knew a ton of the same people. But, uh, yeah, I went there and... Just something about the way that he carried himself and, you know, uh, like you said, that, that humility that he uh, puts across. Like, you know, I didn't know that this dude's like a multiple-time world champion in karate, you know. Like, I just thought he was some dude that wanted to open a karate school. He knew about martial arts, you know. I didn't know that uh, he had all these bona fides, but that – because that doesn't really matter. Like, you can be a world champion and be a garbage instructor. Like, I've seen it happen a million times. Like, I know people who are really good at something but can't teach for shit. Like, he lets his program speak for itself, which I think is incredible. And even the, you know, the stuff that he does for the community, like, it never asks for a dime doing the trunk or treat. And, like, you know, I've I've worked all those events with Kyle. We've, uh, and he will never ask you to do anything that he won't do himself. You know, we, not this past year because of 
COVID and things were a little different, but the year before I wasn't working during trunk or treat and me and him put in like a 50 hour weekend putting together that whole haunted house for, <laughs> you know, some kids in the neighborhood just to go through a haunted house. You know, I think that's an awesome thing to do. So yeah. let me ask you this. Um, I know you said he did jujitsu before, um, but Kyle mentioned uh, to me in talking before we did the podcast that there really is nobody that's more disciplined than you. That, like, out of everybody he's ever met in his life, he said you were one of the most disciplined people he's ever met. Do you think that being disciplined and having jujitsu has kind of helped in your recovery and helped like give you that that structure? A hundred and ten percent. As as drug addicts. Uh, anybody who's ever had a substance abuse problem can attest to the fact that like your life is absolute fucking chaos all the time, and that's where you love it, right? Like that's that's your comfort zone because like everything's a mess. So like, well, how do you deal with a mess? You just drink it away, right? Like that seems or you know do heroin, whatever your drug of choice is. Uh, so one of the things that was like really drilled into my head early on was like, okay, get uh, get a job, get a hobby. Get something you enjoy doing and get a routine and stick to it. And I have, with the exception of COVID, which really kind of like uh, took a toll on me mentally. Because like I have, I, I am very disciplined and I'm a creature of habit. Like I lift these days during the week and I wake up at 5 a.m. I go to the gym. I don't give a shit if there's a foot of snow outside. If the gym's open, I'm there. If there's class, I'm there. If there needs to be a class taught, I'm there. Like I make sure that I have like a very regimented schedule. I'm never late for work. I'm very punctual, like things that I could never in my wildest dreams do when I was getting high. I make it a point to do them in my life now. And they're simple things, right? Like get up 15 minutes earlier. You can get a whole lot done. If you get up 15 minutes earlier and just start your fucking day, boom, done, easy. Like don't be late. If you're 15 minutes late for everything, well, then you're starting 15 minutes behind all the time. Let's be on time, right? Like little simple things in life that you can change that add up to be like this dramatic effect like if you met me three years ago and met me now you wouldn't even think we we're the same person like not just physically and but like mentally like having a conversation with me then and me now it's it's worlds apart so with um with jujitsu and like having uh your regiment and everything of that sort um during the pandemic like how did you adapt to kind of stay on regiment because i know a lot of us uh, fell off the gym, fell off because it was closed or there was an easy excuse for it to happen to, for us to not train or not go out and do something. Like, how did you maintain that if the gyms were closed and things of that sort? Like, what what did you do for, for yourself to stay? Uh, well, I struggled with that a lot, as you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I'm asking because there was times I had to pick you up from the house to yeah, just get you yeah. out of the house. Yeah, uh, yeah. As Kyle and certainly my girlfriend can attest to, uh, I struggled a lot uh, during COVID. And I think a lot of people uh, in recovery did. And, you know, I remember saying to Kyle a few times, like, hey, man, if I'm struggling this bad, I can't imagine if this would have happened, like, right when I came home from jail. I would have lost my mind. Uh, it was a learning process. Right. I learned that like, okay, all that discipline, when somebody throws a wrench in the works, like it can go right out the window too, just like anything else. So I had to learn to adjust and doing, uh, as awful as it is trying to teach jujitsu over zoom, uh, doing those zoom classes was tremendously helpful for me, uh, because it gave me something that I had to do every day. Right. Like I had to make sure that I'm there to teach the kids because that's a responsibility to me. I, these kids look up to me. They don't know that I used to be 
some low-life junkie. They just know that I'm their jiu-jitsu coach and they look up to me. So I have responsibility to them. So that gave me, like, a little bit of purpose. I had to find purpose in different things, if that uh, if that makes sense. And uh, I also had a baby during... I was just going to say. Uh, yeah, we had a baby during quarantine. Uh, so that was different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, w- that was a big adjustment for, uh, for me. And I'm still adjusting to that all the time. Uh, but yeah, that kept me busy because there was uh, just different focus. I, I started trying to like get out and go hiking more, um, more uh, what would be described as like traditional methods of self care than like going and having my friend strangle me unconscious every day, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I do now. Definitely. So you just mentioned you had uh, a baby during quarantine, baby girl. Yep. I was going to say that. It's easy now. Give it about <laughs> 16, 17 years. Wait till those boyfriends come home. Oh, yeah. But uh, uh, you're, obviously, you're, you're relate, as you sp- stated before, your relationship statuses were kind of like very off the wall. And now that you had structure, you were able to maintain this kind of relationship status and not only have uh, a baby, but also kind of adopt a, 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 her son as as your own and I, I know from witness like he calls you dad like you've accepted that responsibility so kind of like what is that transition being from kind of worrying about yourself or going through day-to-day only having to worry about me myself and I to now your girlfriend uh your baby and her son so it kind of adds a little bit of responsibility there yeah um it's again a huge adjustment uh like you said I'm when we first met, I was single. I was living in a spare bedroom at my cousin's house. I had the only responsibilities I had were to make sure I got to my drug tests and went to work every day. That was it. I didn't have to worry about anything else. And it was good. <laughs> uh, stress-free, right? And then uh, I ended up, you know, uh, my girlfriend and I met. We uh, weren't together very long. She got pregnant. Now we have a baby. Like you said, I've pretty much, uh, adopted her son as my own. Uh, it's still a huge adjustment. You know, she, this was my first like serious relationship once I got sober. So I'm still learning and, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that she would call it the learning curve. <laughs> Probably to say I'm an asshole, but, uh, th- there's a lot of things that I'm still learning about like, uh, you know, my, like how to relate to people, uh, in a way that isn't offensive or abrasive, uh, I, so one of the things that like, you know, Kyle is very good at is like being the politically correct one. I'm not so much about that. So I've learned to like hold my tongue, uh, and more. call me and ask me what's yeah, the politically yeah. correct way I can uh, say this. You know, I, I think that like anything in life, uh, it's, it takes an adjustment to things. And I think that's one of the reasons why I have found so much love in jujitsu because it's never like a static thing, right? It's always fluid, which is to me like a, almost like an analogy for life. Like things in life are always changing and you either adjust or die. Like that's it. Like there, there's no no two ways about it. Life is going to continue on and you either stand in the way and end up doing all the dumb shit I did or you just go down the path that the universe is trying to take you and hopefully things work out. You know, they, they have so far. <laughs> so Definitely. Um, so, uh, this is my, one of my last questions for you. And I know this is definitely going to be your most favorite question. Is, is this the, uh, um, a lot of people say that like addiction is a choice and not like a medical disease. Now I know we've spoke about this privately. Um, but like, what is your, what would your stance be on that? Like, or what was your opinion on that being that you've been on both sides of understanding 
the addiction life and been now clean to understand everyone else outside. This is a this will be an interesting uh, perspective to get to because it seems like people are either like on one side of the fence or on the other. Nobody really is is down the middle on this. I Absolutely. See, so. um, now I think the which is funny because the position I'm going to take is kind of right in the middle. Um, I think it's both. I think you make a choice, right? Like no one, no one held me down and shoved the needle into my arm. I made that decision. The second I made that decision and did that, my ability to choose was taken from me because <clears throat> I don't know. However it is, my brain is different than yours. You can go out on Friday and have two beers. I can't, I can go out on Friday, have two beers. And the next thing I know I'm blackout drunk somewhere. <laughs> you know, like my, I don't react the same way. Like when I put mind altering substances into my body, I can no longer control myself. It goes out the window. I have tried to go to the bar and have one drink. I have never succeeded. Uh, so I don't. So I think that like initially there is a choice. Like when I decided that, well, me and my buddies are going to sneak this bottle of liquor away from my mom's party last weekend. Did I know that that was going to flip some switch that I couldn't turn off for the next 20 years? No, I maybe I wouldn't have made that decision. And, you know, I worry about that for my kids. Like, is it, is it a genetic thing or is it the, like, a choice? But I, I can tell you from experience that, like, no one chooses to be a heroin addict. Like, yes. Does it feel incredible? Absolutely. And I can say to this day that I love, love heroin. Love it. Why I don't do it? <laughs> like, you, it's, it's an incredible drug that will take your fucking soul. And I made the choice to do it. That was my fault. And I suffered the consequences, but I also think that, like, the second I made that choice, I no longer had a choice, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, because my, the, like, my brain got hijacked, you know, every day. Like, when you're, when you're on drugs and you're going through withdrawal, yes, you're physically sick, but the entire time, your brain is like, hey, guess what? I know how to make this better. Just go do it. Just go do it. It's fine. Just do a little bit. It'll be fine. You can handle it. And then... Eventually you give in and that's, that's how the cycle continues, you know, and until you consciously like make the decision to stop and no matter what happens, like you can't go back on it. Like, I don't care how bad of a day you have, like, because a bad day is exponentially better than your family having to come say goodbye to you because you fucking got a bad bag and now you're dead. And I've seen that happen to so many of my friends, people that I was close to that died and it was pointless like absolutely no reason for it to happen they knew better and they made a stupid decision and they died and that's their fault it doesn't make it any less sad right people still think cancer is a disease if you smoke cigarettes your entire life and get cancer should we not give you chemo do you not have a disease because you made a choice to smoke cigarettes like if you eat like shit and get diabetes you have a disease you made a choice that you like shit. You know it's not good for you. But you did it anyway. So what, we shouldn't feel bad? Like, we shouldn't be compassionate about that? So I think people just need to be more compassionate towards, like, the, the plight of the drug addict and, like, do I know how to solve these problems? Not necessarily. I think we are, as a society, moving in a correct direction and, like, working more on treatment than punishment. Because, like, I can tell you from being inside jail that most of those people that I was in jail with were there on drug charges. Whether it was because... I know a dude that's facing 20 years because he got two, he got a girl two bags of heroin and she died. So they charged him with death by delivery and now he's looking at 20 years in jail because he was trying to get high. Like, that's unfortunate. You know, and I think that the, the, the treatment needs to be looked at more 
and punishment less. Because, like, putting somebody in jail as a drug addict and not teaching them any skills to deal with life when they get outside and they're no longer in that controlled environment, you're just asking for... A relapse. You know, like, yeah, you're asking for relapse. And I get it. Like, that's the whole... I mean, that's a whole different debate about, like, the for-profit prisons. Like, yeah, if you're still a fuck-up when you go back out, you're going to come back and we still have jobs, right? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, why, why help people, but... So being out, like, obviously it gives you a different perspective of other drug addicts or, like, obviously you can see in people who, like, who have the the, the problem or who have an addiction or are wandering the street, like, and so you have a sense of, like, compassion towards those type of people. So, like, how do you do your part? Like, do you do in your way do you like help them out in any way or do you kind of give them some words of advice or just like just be there as a person who's like understanding uh i try my best to just be the person that's understanding uh if someone asks me for advice i will give it um i've learned again through my personal experience that unsolicited advice usually doesn't go very far uh i had plenty of people like i said that reached out to me and were like hey you know we're worried about you and it was just oh fuck you like i felt like they were judging me as opposed to trying to help me which wasn't the case but until somebody's actually ready to uh get better uh they won't and you just kind of have to hope that it happens before you know anything catastrophic happens in their life like you know god forbid somebody gets drunk and kills somebody or they overdose and die like you know all these things are are terrible um but i try my best to give back like i will never turn my back on somebody who is an addict and is asking me for help like if i genuinely think you want my help and you're not just trying to get me to like give you a ride somewhere like i will help you because there were people there that did that for me and i think that i need to like pay that energy back into the universe. You know what I mean? Like people that helped me didn't have to help me. And because of them, like I'm here now today and, you know, even just like teaching, like I think teaching helped me give back. Like there's a lot of things that I try to do to, uh, I guess make, make the world better than it is now. Uh, I know like, you know, I'm not anybody that can change the whole world, but like if I can, if listening to this podcast can help one person, then great. If me teaching jujitsu can give some kid like a hobby so he doesn't end up running around out in the streets and mixing up with the wrong people when he's young, when he's older. Great. Like, I'm not trying to change the world necessarily, but if I change one person's life, then great. Absolutely. Chad, do you have anything else you would like to ask? Uh, James? I don't, I don't think so. I think, um, I really just wanted to thank you for coming on. Obviously it's our first episode. Um, so if the quality sucks, we apologize. But uh, for a first guest, um, I don't know if we could have had a better first guest to just come on and kind of explain, um, you know, what many people would consider. It's a pretty sensitive subject, um, not only to you, but to the general public. Like a lot of people don't know the other side of the, of the story. Uh, and I think I think you speak you speak about it very well. Um, you know, and you, you bring up points and you talk about things that, you know, really a lot of people would find hard to listen to. And I think that's kind of what we're going for here is like to kind of, you know, bring out the inspiring people of NEPA. And I think that, you know, your story is one of them. Um, I, I think it's a great way to start off. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like I said, when we, when we spoke about this podcast, I knew exactly who we were starting with and what, when we were starting with, I was like, I'm around this guy five days a week, four to five hours. I was like, 
there's there's no one better to start it off with. Plus, if we really mess this up, there's no one that's going to judge us. Across yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. We, we can do it again if you guys want to hear me ramble some more. Definitely, though. But um, those of you guys that are listening to the podcast, we appreciate your support. We appreciate you guys listening. Uh, my name is Kyle Reed. I'm here with Chad Vale, um, and this is NEPA-inspired with uh, Coach James Delaney from NEPA Mixed Martial Arts. Thank you.